Alrighty, good morning everyone. Thank you for showing up this morning at 8 a.m. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and on a Saturday. Ooh, you're brave. <laughs> this is PAL02, New Drugs in Pain Management and Palliative Care. And we have Dr. Mary Lynn McPherson and Dr. Alexandra McPherson here today. Let's give them a warm welcome. Thank you. Take it away, ladies. Thank you. So an 8 a.m. talk without coffee is like working without a net, isn't it? Good Lord. So luckily, I'm, I'm good to go. So thank you for getting up at the crack of dawn to come to this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that a talk on pain and palliative care, especially the palliative care part, is all new drugs, basically, because we see everything. So um, I will admit that when we put this together, we were... Um, if the drugs that we found most interesting and fascinating and probably useful are really the ones we're going to hit uh, more clearly. We have so many drugs that are approved that are like a Me Too drug or just not terribly exciting. So let's jump in. So neither of us have anything to disclose, but I do like this cartoon. It says, how is Kaylee going to be president if she won't disclose the contents of her lunchbox? How much chocolate is she hiding? So who knows how much Kaylee's got in there? Naughty kitten. So these are our objectives to talk about new medications introduced or approved in 2016 or 17 and to give you the scoop on the ones that we thought were most pertinent and relevant. I thought this was kind of an interesting slide. It's looking at the approval, how many drugs were approved each year for the past several years. And as you can see, look at 2016 right here. Boom. This was 2015. What the heck happened in 2016? A lot of drugs either they hurried up and approved them in 2015, or they said you need more information. So we'll probably see an upswing in 2017. But I thought that was kind of interesting. And I always said in my next life I wanted to come back and be the person that names drugs. What do you think? It picks the colors. You know, I want to invent the next purple pill. Uh, but apparently here is the science behind picking drug names. So you take the first three letters of everybody's dog's name, and that's how you pick the, the name of the new drugs. I don't know. I didn't know there was science behind it. All right, so we're going to start with the CNS drugs, and uh, this is my section first. So I do practice in chronic non-cancer pain, but the bulk of my practice is in hospice and palliative care. So I am very interested in managing delirium in people who have advanced illness, and we don't do a great job. And there's just so much data um, on you know, the evils of the antipsychotics, and people are afraid to use them. This is really interesting. Pimavanserin, Nuplazid, is a drug indicated for the treatment of hallucinations and delusions, specifically with Parkinson's disease. So, I mean, it's, it's bad enough that you got Parkinson's disease, and then to get delirium on top of it, that's like a double whammy. I think, as a pharmacist, I find this incredibly interesting due to the mechanism of action. It is just completely off the hook here. Um, it is an inverse agonist and an antagonist of serotonin uh, 5-HT2A receptors. It doesn't act at the dopamine receptors, so it's not going to worsen the Parkinson's disease and it's not going to cause extrapyramidal symptoms. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, and it's far less likely to cause serious adverse effects like tartar dyskinesia or neuro uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome. It can prolong the QTC. Of course, everything in the universe can prolong the QTC. But what the heck is an inverse agonist? So if you look at it, if, if you look at this curve here, here's response and here's the, the dosing. An agonist is a drug, as you can see, it goes along and stimulates the receptor so you get a heightened response, whatever that response has to be, happens to be. And then the orange line here is an antagonist drug. All an antagonist drug does is it's a, it occupies the receptor so nothing can stimulate it. It's like, na 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 boo boo, you can't touch me. So there's no response either which way. An inverse agonist, check this out, it causes the opposite effect of what God intended the receptor to do. Is that cray cray or what? They first thought about calling this kind of a drug a contragonist, but then they thought, well, nobody will know what the heck that means. Not that they know what an inverse agonist means either, but I thought that was pretty darn interesting. Maybe it's just me. Um, so again, we do see, they do still have the labeling about an increased risk of death when treating older people with dementia-related psychoses. And uh, I would bet the farm that that's not specifically directly related to this drug. I would imagine it's more of a class effect from our antipsychotics. We do have to worry about QTC, uh, class three antiarrhythmics, and antipsychotics can interact, uh, antibacterials, and other 3A4 inhibitors and inducers. Fairly well tolerated, as you can see, a low incidence of nausea, about 7%, and edema, and so forth. The dose there is 34 milligrams once a day. If they're on a strong 3A4 inhibitor, only 17 milligrams a day. 
Uh, clinical data was based on a six-week randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial on 199 people, and they did see a change in the score in the Parkinson's disease adapted a scale for assessment of positive symptoms. So as you can see, the effect was double placebo, and this was considered to be clinically significant, with no effect on motor function. Uh, so consider concurrent use of other QTC prolonging drugs. Um, there's strong evidence of the effectiveness. I was reading one editorial about this, and they said, in Parkinson's treatment, this is like going to be like the atorvastatin of cardiac disease. So I don't know. So as a person who uh, is in charge of the hospice formulary, I'm a little concerned about the price tag. How much is that doggy in the window? It's about $2,000 a month. So it doesn't come cheap, but what does these days, right? All right, so maybe it's just me. I'm on a roll here, but uh, I am rapidly interested in psilocybin. Psilocybin, rather. Jeez, it's too early in the morning to talk. Who's heard of psilocybin? A couple of people. You're thinking, what is it? It's magic mushrooms. Oh, yeah. Yes, how crazy is this? Um, the man who started doing all the research on psilocybin is in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins, and he's about 80 years old now, and he is still smarter than all of us in this room put together with brain cells left over. His name is Dr. Bill Richards. He's a psychologist, and he started doing this work literally back in like the 19, end of the 50s, the 60s, and then uh, he was tooling along, just doing a great job, and then Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act in the 70s, and that put the kibosh on all his work on magic mushrooms. Darn it. What a buzzkill Nixon was. Anyway, uh, this is for cancer-related emotional distress. So it's a psychedelic compound uh, produced by more than 200 mushrooms known as psilocybin mushrooms. They have just completed and published three very large studies published in incredibly well-respected journals uh, looking at 92 patients who all had significant improvement. Um, I thought I had more slides on this, but it's a capsule full of magic mushrooms. So the, the patient goes into a, a zen-type room. It's very quiet. It looks like a living room. There's a beautiful plush sofa there. They take this capsule. They put on um, blindfolds. They wear headphones to listen to music. They lie down on the couch, and they go on this trip for about six or seven hours. So of course, being the pragmatist that I am, I had to ask the question, what if you have to pee? Because I don't think anybody can go six hours out. And he's like, oh, no, you can wake up, and you can sit up and look at pictures while you're sitting on the sofa, and then you can lay down and take a nap again for a while. But basically, it's like a six-hour trip, and it has an, an enormous effect on the existential angst associated with advanced illness. And it really, you only need one treatment. And to hear this man talk, at the end when he, I've had him present several times for our hospice network, I always ask the question, who would like to try this? And every hand in the room goes up. It's like, oh, the line forms behind me, because I, I think I want to do this. So it's an experimental drug. We're still testing to see how much customers will pay for it. So it's not ready for prime time, so we'll see. I find this very interesting from a pharmaceutics perspective as well. I mean, uh, levetiracetam certainly is everybody's darling when it comes to anti-seizure drugs, even if it's not really indicated or effective for what the patient has. I know in end-of-life care, we get a lot of people with primary meds to the brain, and you are not supposed to put them prophylactically on an anti-epileptic drug. The American Academy of Neurology is very clear about this. The American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine says if someone comes program on an anti-epileptic and it's serving as a prophylactic drug, you should taper off and stop it because if they're going to seize, they will probably seize through whatever you pick to begin with. But anyway, everybody loves levetiracetam, Keppra, because it's a very clean drug. And so many of the anti-seizure drugs are just naughty kittens and just dirty drugs. Anyway, this is a new formulation of levetiracetam called Spritum. It's a rapidly disintegrating tablet formulation, which is awesome for my patients who have a hard time swallowing. You just put it in their mouth and away we go. So it's adjunctive treatment for partial onset myoclonic or primary generalized tonic-clonic uh, and used off-label for everything from soup to nuts. And they make this using 3D technology where the 3D printer dispenses powdered medication in layers and a liquid binding agent binds the layers together. It's solid but porous. So it, when you take it, put it in your mouth with a sip of water, 11 seconds, the drug has completely disintegrated. Isn't that awesome? I think that's so cool. Um, and then now we have a new one. A cousin of levetiracetam is brivaracetam or Briviac. Um, this is indicated either oral or IV as adjunctive therapy for partial onset seizures in people 16 and older. It reduces the seizure frequency by about 925%. So it's probably not going to be a first-line drug, um, but, you know, if you could reduce your child's seizures by 25%, I think that 
would be clinically significant. So it is very much related to levetiracetam, but brivaracetam has a much higher binding affinity for the receptors. You can see a 10 to 30-fold higher affinity. Advantage, uh, it works where sometimes other drugs have not worked. Disadvantages, it has only been compared to placebo, not to other comparator drugs for the same indication. No studies in uh, people under 16 years of, old, of age, and it is twice daily dosing. And also it's a Schedule 5, and I'm not sure why. You'll hear more about that in a few minutes. Um, you can see hypersensitivity reactions, suicidal behavior, and ideation, but that's a class warning. Psychiatric adverse effects and neurologic, again, Schedule 5, metabolized by the uh, 2C9. Side effects, well, this is not surprising. Somnolence and sedation, about 16%. Dizziness, fatigue, nausea, and vomiting. Uh, and there's the dose, 50 twice a day. You can adjust to anywhere from 25 to 100. If you have a strong 2C9 inducer like rifampin, you want to increase it. And there's the IV dosing. Now, this is what I like to call the money slide here. So if you look at it, um, I've given you the products here and the effectiveness, but look at the little table. So generic levetiracetam is about 33 bucks a month. That's, not a, that's pretty good. That's a cheap date. If you look at Kepra, brand name Kepra, it's about $436 a month. And the new Spritum, which I thought was cute as a bug's ear, is about $433 a month. Look at Rivaracetam, $910 a month. So I really don't see this being a first-line drug, um, and even the, the trade name Spritum, even though it's adorable, I don't see that being first-line either. Because if we had a hospice patient who couldn't swallow their tablet or capsule and they were at risk for seizures, we would use lorazepam oral solution and put it in the buccal cavity. Boom, $5, we're done. Okay, valbenazine, or Ingreza, is, this is pretty interesting too. This is another firsty, first in class. Treatment of tardive dyskinesia in adults uh, it is a selective vesicular monoamine transporter 2, or VMAT, inhibitor. So it reduces uh, dopamine in the synaptic cleft there. So it's the first in class for the treatment of tardive dyskinesia. It does prolong the QTC, but it, at therapeutic doses, not, not to a clinically significant extent. Uh, the clinical data, double-blind placebo-controlled randomized controlled trial in 234 patients with moderate to severe uh, tardive dyskinesia and underlying schizophrenia. It uh, showed improvement. It reduces the AIM score by about 30 to 40 percent at the 80 milligram dose. Uh, and we do see sustained reductions in tardive dyskinesia throughout the 48 weeks of treatment. Um, adverse effects somnolence, 11 percent. You start at 40, you go up to 80 milligrams. Uh, it's about $5,200 for a month. So that's a lot of money. But you know, if somebody I cared about had tardive dyskinesia, if you could cut it in half, I don't know. I don't know. I might have to start selling my jewelry. Honorable mention, um, so these are drugs that are, you know, certainly important drugs, but um, we're not going to go into great detail here. Muscular dystrophy, muscular sclerosis. Um, next year when I give a talk like this, I'll talk at greater length about the new drug for ALS, uh, Radicava. I don't, really don't know much about it at this point. Um, and again, another drug for Parkinson's disease at the bottom there. What a pain. I think you're on, yes? Take it from here. Okay. All right, so our first drug is Lisinurat or Zerampic. It was approved by the FDA at the end of 2015 and is indicated in combination with a xanthine oxidase inhibitor like allopurinol for the treatment of gout that is not controlled essentially on a xanthine oxidase inhibitor alone. Um, it does have a little bit of a unique mechanism of action, which we'll discuss in a moment and when used in combination can result in additional reductions in serum uric acid when it is used with the xanthine oxidase inhibitor. It's not considered a first-line agent, and it does have several important limitations, which we will discuss in a moment. So in terms of adverse effects, it is fairly well tolerated, but it does carry a black box warning for increased risk of acute renal failure. So it should be used with caution in patients with a serum creatinine less than, four, or less than 60 and avoided altogether in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 45. It's metabolized to some extent by CYP2C9, so there is the potential there for drug-drug interactions. And it should be avoided in patients with severe hepatic impairment due to risk of um, faulty CYP enzymes, essentially. Um, they have seen more heart problems, including MI and stroke, but they're unsure of the mechanism for which uh, the, the lisinurate causes those effects. Aspirin doses greater than 325 milligrams per day 
have been shown to reduce the effectiveness of Zorampic. And in general, Zorampic reduces the reliability of hormonal contraceptives, so something to take into consideration for women of childbearing age that are potentially on contraceptives. And then as previously mentioned, it is fairly well tolerated with the primary side effects being headache, influenza, GERD, and increased serum creatinine. The usual dose of Zorampic is 200 milligrams by mouth once daily taken with food and water. And the water part of that is really important. So patients should be instructed to drink at least two liters of water per day, staying well hydrated just to reduce the risk of renal dysfunction. If for some reason the patient's xanthine oxidase inhibitor is held, Zorampic should be held as well because taking one without the other does place them at an increased risk for renal impairment. And as previously mentioned, it is contraindicated in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 45. So if the patient's creatinine clearance drops below that and persists, it should be discontinued. So I promised we'd get to the mechanism of action and being pharmacists up here, that's what we're interested in. So how and how well does it work? So it, it does have a unique mechanism of action. It works by inhibiting the uric acid transporter 1 and organic anion transporter 4, which are responsible for reabsorbing the majority of uric acid. And when used in combination with allopurinol, which is a xanthine oxidase inhibitor, uric acid was reduced to target in 55% of patients, which was double that in the allopurinol and placebo group. And in terms of cost, because nothing comes cheap, it is $370 a month approximately. Yep. All right. Our next drug is Vivlodex, which is a low-dose meloxicam formulation, which is an NSAID, as we know. It's available as 5 and 10 milligram capsules, which, again, have a little bit cool mechanism of action. So it has submicron particles developed using solumatrix fine particle technology. So essentially, these smaller particles allow for more rapid absorption of the drug. The Tmax for the 10 milligram Vivlodex was two hours versus four hours for the 15 milligram generic meloxicam tablet. And Vivlodex had a 33% lower AUC indicating decreased systemic absorption uh, or decreased systemic exposure, so potentially less side effects. Um, the main side effects, just as with meloxicam, are primarily GI, diarrhea, nausea, abdominal discomfort. Generic meloxicam, branded Mobic, and Vivlodex are included in that table on the bottom right. And as you can see, Vivlodex is significantly more expensive than the other two. What else is new? <laughs> so maybe it wouldn't be worth the money for chronic dosing. I mean, maybe if you buy into that 33% reduction in um, serum concentration, but that's, that's kind of an expensive drug. Yeah. All right, so Despite the fact that the legalization of marijuana is spreading like a weed, pardon the pun, at the state level, the DEA has decided to keep marijuana as a Schedule I controlled substance. So the DEA has now denied two requests to reschedule marijuana under the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services determined that marijuana has a high potential for abuse, has no accepted medical use in the United States, and lacks an acceptable level of safety for use under medical supervision. So HHS recommended marijuana stay a Schedule I substance. And I know we've learned a lot about uh, cannabinoids and medical marijuana at this conference alone, so who knows when, if or when that will change. Belbuca is a buprenorphine buccal film. As we know, buprenorphine is a partial agonist, partial opioid agonist, and the adverse effects are largely similar to that of other opioids, but a, a couple of them, including um, QTC prolongation and hepatotoxicity, differ a little bit. The dosing is listed here for your reference, both for opioid-naive and opioid-tolerant patients. So for opioid-naive, Belbuca is started at 75 mics once daily or Q12, and after four days can be increased to 150 mics Q12. And then with opioid-tolerant patients, you'll taper down until the patient is on 30 milligrams oral morphine equivalent or less, and then dose based on that little algorithm there. It's available in multiple strengths, and the cost is listed there. And those costs are for 60 films, so a patient on a one-month supply of Q12 dosing for the films. All right, another buprenorphine product is probufine. 
pretty cool. It's a rod-shaped implant, provides up to a six-month delivery of buprenorphine, so similar to the Nexplanon contraceptive um, administration. So four rods are implanted. Um, it's indicated for maintenance treatment in stable opioid-dependent patients receiving eight milligrams or less of buprenorphine on a daily basis. Compared, uh, when compared to daily sublingual buprenorphine, naloxone um, demonstrated non-inferiority for the primary outcome of at least four months free of illicit drug use. And as expected, as with everything we've just discussed so far, significantly more expensive. And again, the price is listed there. Since this is an implant that lasts for six months, the pricing for um, the buprenorphine there is also for a six-month supply, just for comparison's sake. So if you ever want to get good information on drug pricing, one app that we use a lot is GoodRx. Has anybody ever seen GoodRx? It's awesome. There's a, there's a provider version and a patient version. And it, uh, you put in the name of the drug, and for the patient, it'll tell you, okay, so it can it, the phone wants to know your location. So the Sam's Club two miles away has it for this much, and the Rite Aid has it for this much. It's pretty awesome. So in response to the growing public health concerns um, resulting from the opioid epidemic, as we've learned during this conference, more and more abuse deterrent formulations are being introduced to market in an attempt to make our opioid analgesics safer. So one such example is Extampsa ER, which is the second extended release abuse deterrent formulation of oxycodone. It comes in a variety of strengths, which are listed here for your reference. And as you can see, they differ from the traditional oxycodone ER formulation. So dosing is a little bit weird, 9, 13.5, et cetera. So just something to be aware of. The capsules, this is another important counseling point for our patients. The capsules must be taken with food, and patients should consume the same amount of food with every dose in order to consume ensure consistent plasma levels. And this is important because bioavailability can increase 100 to 150% when taken with a high fat meal. In patients with difficulty swallowing, since we see a lot of hospice and palliative care patients, the capsules can be opened and sprinkled on soft food, applesauce, something like that, um, or given orally or through an NG or PEG tube. The recommended starting dose in opioid naive patients is nine milligrams orally Q12, and in patients with hepatic impairment, the dose should be reduced anywhere from a third to half. And depending on the dose, the monthly cost ranges from $430 to $730. So again, not a cheap date. Vantrella ER and Arimo ER are two additional long-acting abuse deterrent opioids. Vantrella ER is a hydrocodone formulation and is available in multiple strengths shown here. And the initial dosing for opioid-naive patients is 15 milligrams Q12. Arimo is a morphine formulation, and the recommended dose for opioid-naive patients is 15 Q8 to 12. Um, there are even more that have been introduced or are currently in clinical trials. I know one we learned about at this conference is the Morphobond ER, um, which is an extended-release abuse-deterrent morphine formulation available in 15, 30, 60, and 120 milligram tablets. Here are just some of the other commercially available long-acting abuse deterrent opioid formulations all in a chart just for your reference um, with the respective mechanisms of action for abuse deterrence and the cost for a 30-day supply at the opioid naive starting dose. Methadone's looking pretty good, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, baby. All right. Troxica ER extended release capsule formulation of oxycodone, obviously an opioid agonist, and naltrexone an opioid antagonist, and is available in the strength shown here. The recommended initial dose for opioid naive patients is the 10 milligram, 1.2 milligram capsule Q12. And the manufacturer recommended conversion is that half the total daily dose of oral oxycodone is equal to the Troxica ERQ12 dose. Anything to comment on the conversion? No, it sounds, I think most of these abuse to turn formulations, as I recall, uh, got their approval based on bioequivalence with other oral formulations. So, so far as opioid conversion calculations go, unless they have something peculiar in their labeling, I would just roll with that. And it has the usual opioid-related side effects, but no information on price was available when we prepared this presentation. 
At the end of April, the FDA released a drug safety communication regarding the use of codeine and tramadol in children and in breastfeeding mothers. Uh, the FDA added two new contraindications. So codeine should not be used to treat pain or cough, and tramadol should not be used to treat pain in children younger than 12 years old. And codeine was already contraindicated in this population, but now tramadol is contraindicated in children less than 18 years old after tonsil or adenoid surgery. Um, so just something to take into consideration there. A new warning was also added to the drug labels of both medications, recommending against their use in adolescents between 12 and 18 years old who are obese or who have conditions such as obstructive sleep apnea or severe lung disease, which can increase the risk of serious breathing problems and respiratory depression. A strengthened warning for breastfeeding mothers was added, saying it's not recommended when taking codeine or tramadol due to the risk of serious adverse reactions in the breastfed infants, including excessive sleepiness, difficulty breastfeeding, serious breathing problems, and potentially even death. So something, obviously, to take very seriously. So a lot of this is coming from the huge variability in 2D6 enzyme capability. So they were, first they were profiling children of Ethiopian descent, really were at such great risk from codeine being turned into morphine like gangbusters, but then they said, you know, this is too widespread to profile any population, so that's where this came from. And another drug safety communication in 2016 was regarding the use of opioids and benzos. Uh, an FDA review found that the growing combined use of these two classes of medications, along with other CNS depressants, including alcohol or other pharmacologic agents, has resulted in serious side effects, including respiratory depression and death. No surprise there. Uh, as a result, a box warning was added to the drug labeling for both prescription opioids and benzodiazepines. So stating that these two should only be prescribed together if alternative treatment options are inadequate. And our patients and caregivers really need to be educated heavily on this. So about potential adverse effects, including you know, dizziness, sleepiness, unable to arouse the patient, respiratory depression, and if any of these occur, to seek medical attention immediately. So all hospice people, when this came out, were like, well, that's great. Because when we admit people to hospice, it's like, hi, welcome to hospice. Here's your morphine and your Ativan. Have a good life. <sighs> this, I thought, was pretty cool. So NKTR-181 is a first-in-class opioid analgesic for the treatment of moderate to severe chronic back pain. Fairly specific. Granted fast-track designation from the FDA and is currently in phase three clinical trials. So the cool thing here and the claim to fame for this drug is that it was designed, basically how I understand it is they attached a polyethylene glycol molecule to the opioid itself. So a lot of the other abuse deterrent formulations are formulation specific and can sort of still potentially be altered um, in order to divert them or misuse them. But this makes it really, really almost impossible to do that because it's attached to the opioid molecule itself. So it's designed to have low permeability across the blood-brain barrier in order to slow its rate of entry into the brain and essentially attenuate the dopamine release that underlies euphoria and abuse. So pretty cool. So it sucked all the fun out of it, huh? Okay. <laughs> pretty much. So I love this. It says, I'm a mood, it's a mood elevator. Each capsule contains 10 milligrams of zippity and 5 milligrams of doo -dah. I want this drug. How about you? I think you? we could all use a little zippity doo -dah at 8 a.m. in the morning, especially those of us that did not have our coffee this morning. That's right. All right. Oops. So now we're going to do some GI drugs. Elux Adeline. Does that not sound like a girl's name who comes from the deep south? What do you think? Yes. If I have another child, I'm going to name her Elux Adeline. Glad it wasn't me. Aren't you glad you were number one and oh, not yeah. number two? Okay. So, so I wasn't allowed to say she's my daughter, but she let it out of the bag. So there. All right. So Elux Adeline or Viberzi is indicated for uh, the treatment of adults with IBS and of the diarrhea variety. And it's comparable to Elocitron. 
uh, unique mechanism of action, it's a mu opiate agonist and delta opiate antagonist, less serious GI adverse effects compared to alocitron, which has ischemic colitis and serious complications of constipation. I guess you explode, that's not a good look. Uh, and also importantly here, the prescribing of this drug is not restricted. You don't, you don't have to go through a closed pharmacy provider. Um, disadvantage is greater risk of the sphincter of OD, spasm, and pancreatitis, and it is a Schedule IV drug. Contraindications, all the things you would suspect. Um, suspected biliary duct obstruction, the sphincter of OD disease, pancreatitis, and so forth, severe hepatic impairment, severe constipation, GI obstruction alcohol abuse and overuse. Also, you want to reduce the dose if someone is on an organic anion transporting polypeptide 1B1 inhibitor or a strong CYP inhibitor, and obviously the use of other constipating drugs, and it can increase the action of um, some of the statins. Adverse effects, obviously, constipation, nausea, abdominal pain. The dose is 100 milligrams twice a day, reduced to 75 as needed. It's about $1,000 a month, so obviously these are expensive branded drugs. Um, and then I think, wow, I think pharmacists get really excited about the Pamoras. And given what we do for a living, I'm sure we're all very interested in the Pamoras. So the first one on the market, of course, was methanaltrexone. And I can't help but think back to when the first studies came out with IV methanaltrexone. Who can remember the time to onset of action? I'm gonna get, they're going to take Dr. Aaron off here. I'm going to give him a, an IV dose of methanaltrexone. So will Dr. Aronoff have time to fire up his computer and work on his next book? It's very prolific. No, he will not have time to fire up his Kindle to even read his next book because it was in one minute. I mean, you go in the bathroom, drop trowel, sit down, boom, get the injection, boom, we're time for the paperwork. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Anyway, so we don't have the IV on the, on the, on the market. We have sub-Q, obviously, but now they have an oral formulation. So how did the, what's the scoop here? So they took naltrexone and added this big honking methyl group right here, and that's what keeps it from crossing the blood-brain barrier. So I'm always interested in one of these new PAMORAs when they come out. What is the mechanism of action to keep it out, out of the blood-brain barrier? Um, so obviously, um, I love this precaution, be within close proximity to toilet facilities once <laughs> administered. Yeah, don't go too far. Don't, don't go shoe shopping at Nordstrom's at the semi-annual sale after you take a dose of any of these drugs. Um, discontinue laxatives. Um, the injection is 12 milligrams or 8 perhaps, uh, or 450 by mouth uh, once daily in the morning. Uh, so you can see the dose can be down to 8 or you can also be dosed by weight. Um, safety, creatinine clearance less than 60, you want to reduce the dose. With advanced illness, so people who have a, a, are hospice-appropriate palliative care, 50% of the full dose. Be careful, again, people with a GI obstruction, GI perforation, persistent diarrhea. Um, so the side effects, as you can see here, abdominal pain, 14% with tablets, 29% with injection, although placebo got 10%, that's, that's pretty impressive, uh, diarrhea, and some nausea and some dizziness. Um, it's, it's really interesting how now the, F, what the, the FDA makes the pharmaceutical manufacturers go through to get one of these drugs approved now. It's like, it's, it's, it's not as simple as how many times do you poop a week. It's pretty impressive how you have to track what's what and who's eligible and so forth. And if it's Tuesday and if it's raining and if you lean to the left, I mean, it's, it's pretty intense now. So they define the bottom line here, open-induced constipation. Uh, for chronic non-cancer pain for the oral is defined as less than three spontaneous bowel movements a week and one or more of the following, a Bristol stool chart uh, form of one or two. Who's familiar with the Bristol stool chart? I love the Bristol stool chart. I talk so long and so much about the Bristol stool chart. I actually went to Cafe Press and had a Bristol stool chart coffee mug made. And I give it to all my residents as, a, as an end-of-the-year present. I gave her one for Christmas. She thought it was, she loves it. She loved, you know she loves it. Secretly. She just won't admit it in public. Um, so a, a one or two, I mean, it, it goes from, you know, one is, is pretty bad. So one is like little rabbit pellets, you know, where you strain and you strain and you strain, and you think your eyeballs are going to fall out of your head. That's a one. And then a four is like the holy grail. The four is like, it's like, it's cohesive, it's the, the stool is of one, it kind of slides out. It's, it's a magical, mystical experience. It really, you see Jesus when it's a four, okay? And then it, it goes all the way up to seven, which you're in the splash zone when it's a seven. So a one or two is, you know, it's strokeogenic. It really is. It's, it's not a good look. Anyway, 
Um, did you make that word up? I didn't make that word up, yes. Okay. And, or straining for at least 25% of the bowel moves, or feeling like, you know, I went, but I'm, I'm still not happy. It's, it's, it, was the, it was not a job well done. So it has to be pretty specific. Who's eligible to get this drug? So a responder who's like, yay, we did it, is three or more spontaneous bowel movements a day with an increase of one or more spontaneous bowel movement a week over baseline for three or more out of the first four weeks of the treatment period. Good Lord, they must have to hire psychometricians to get these trials done. It's crazy. Anyway, oral methylnaltrexone saw 52% responders on their 450 a day versus 38% with placebo. So the number needed to treat is eight. You've got to treat eight people for one of them to meet this crazy uh, finish point here. Um, so let's see. Four weeks of methylnaltrexone sub-Q therapy versus placebo. This is just showing the response rate with the sub-Q. 59% versus 38% with placebo. Now, there's a new one on the market now. Oh, by the way, um, naloxagol, Movantic, just got the indication for treatment of um, constipation and cancer survivors. So that's what's new with that product. Uh, now, Demidine, Simproiac, I'm sure you pronounce it. Uh, this is not quite on the market yet, I don't believe. It was approved. Opium-induced constipation, or perhaps it is. Opium-induced constipation with non-cancer pain, same mechanism. So it is like naltrexone, but it's got a big honking side chain. And that's what keeps it from crossing the blood-brain barrier. Um, naloxagol ha is pegylated. And then, of course, there's alvimapan, um, which is enteric, which is used in the hospital to prevent post-op bilious. That's a zwitterion. I love working the word zwitterion into any sentence I can because it's just so darn fun to say. A strong positive end and a strong negative end. So this is another oral formulation, once daily dosing. Uh, there have been reports of opioid withdrawal. So you want to make sure you don't cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, I don't know the price on this one yet. So stay tuned. Naloxagol, um, naloxagol is about 300 a month. Methanaltrexone is crazy expensive. It's like $1,600 a month from what I could find. Now, that could be wrong, but um, none of these are a cheap date. So anyway, stay tuned on that. Placanotide or True Lance is for chronic idiopathic constipation. It's very similar to laconotide, uh, which is Linzess. So as you can see, these are about $350 a month. They're guanylate cyclase C receptor agonists. So obviously, with all of these drugs for constipation, I don't see any of them as first-line drugs uh, because of the expense. I mean, the Senna, which is older than God, you know, we don't actually have the kind of data is particularly when I showed you what the FDA is making these drug companies go through now to prove the efficacy, you're never going to find that for Senna or for polyethylene glycol. So I do think Senna and polyethylene glycol for opioid-induced constipation are still going to be your first-line workhorse drugs. Now, it's not part of this talk, but uh, just as a little aside, a little extra bargain tip here for you, Senna-S is not as good as plain old Senna. We have seen that the S part, the docusate, just makes everything kind of a red-hot mess. So hospitals have actually moved away from even having docusate available. Uh, so we just use plain old Senna. We start at two a day. We rock it up to eight. I do like polyethylene glycol. People with an advanced illness, it's sometimes hard for them to get down four to eight ounces of fluid. So that's the one limitation with polyethylene glycol. Uh, let's see, more GI news. I think every day that you wake up, you hear something icky about the proton pump inhibitors. Uh, and then the next day you'll hear a retraction. Now, maybe that wasn't true. But we've heard about increased risk, possibly of ischemic stroke, possibly an increased risk for uh, renal function decline. Um, acid suppressants may increase the risk for recurrent C. diff infection. So I know in my hospice program, we really look carefully at people on PPIs because they're not a free ride. I read a monthly newsletter called Farm Smart from my hospices I work with, and we did a whole issue on PPIs. If you're interested, shoot me an email. I'm happy to share the love. Um, but I mean, like the purple pill is $6 a day. So many patients go, they're in the ICU, they're worried about stress ulcer, they put them on IV protonics, and then a well-intentioned medical resident puts them on an oral PPI when they go out to the floor, and then another medical resident sends them home on a $6 a day drug they don't even need. And it does increase the risk for a lot of adverse effects. And a lot of times the patient has no idea why they were started on it in the first place. So it's difficult when we see them, you know, and we're trying to do a good job with transitions of care and potentially de-prescribing, we don't know whether they really need it or not. So it kind of puts us in a tough spot. Yeah. So I am nobody's ID expert, but just for completeness sake, yet there's another hep C drug. Good Lord, are these expensive drugs. This is Efclusa, which is a combination of sofosbuvir and Valpatosvir. Wow, I think just saying that I deserve a brownie just for that. 
Um, advantage with this one is it can be used in any genotype. So we have the six genotypes, and this can be used for any of them. This one is about $75,000 a course as well. Um, let's see. Symptomatic bradycardia has been reported. Be careful with amiodarone. Anything else exciting? Well, look at the side effects. Headache up to 22%, fatigue 32%, and a, a fair amount of nausea as well. We had a patient not too long ago that brought in their Epclusa from home because the hospital was not paying for it, and the nurse accidentally misplaced it. Yikes. So they were not happy campers, to <laughs> say the least. Um, do you want to speak to this? You were telling me about this, about the hep B uh, reactivation in co-infected patients. So the FDA is now saying, please screen for both before you start any of the therapies. And honorable mention, just for other infectious diseases, drugs, um, more for hep C, uh, a vaccine for Vibrio cholera, and then uh, Alex just actually wrote a newsletter on C. difficile, and she was talking about this one. How much was that last drug there? Bezlotoxumab? Thousands of dollars. Yeah, about $3,000 a month to prevent C. diff. Reduce so. the risk of recurrent C. Right. diff. Crazy, crazy. And then, of course, we've all heard about the fluoroquinolones causing um, problems here. So really, the fluoroquinolones have been pushed further and further down the food chain. Uh, this caption here is, we've run out of things to name our drugs. It's time to invent some new alphabet letters. Um, Moving on to the new drugs and cancer treatments. So the first is a dronabinol oral solution called Syndros, indicated for anorexia associated with AIDS and chemo-induced nausea and vomiting. As we know, it's the pharmaceutical version of tetrahydrocannabinol. So the starting dose is a little bit different based on whether you're using it for anorexia or chemo-induced nausea and vomiting. So anorexia is 2.1 milligrams orally twice daily, uh, an hour before lunch and an hour before dinner. And you start once a day in the elderly and increase up to 4.2 milligrams twice daily as needed. Has a little bit quicker onset than Marinol. And the cost, again, TBD wasn't available when we, we checked again yesterday, still wasn't available. Uh, but one month of Marinol costs about $300, and it will be no surprise when this is more expensive than that. So not sure this is a slam dunk. Here we have some miscellaneous new drugs in cancer. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read through all of these, but it does go through the trade and generic name and the indications. Here are more. And then we're going to get into some updates on diabetes drugs and just revisions in the labeling. So the first is the revised metformin labeling. So very widely used drug, as you know. In 2014, 14.4 million patients received metformin. Um, so the revised labeling expanded its use in certain patients with reduced renal function. Um, and the primary concern associated with metformin and renal impairment is the increased risk for lactic acidosis. So instead of using the serum creatinine, which is historically what we used for renally dose-adjusting metformin, now it's the GFR. So if the GFR is less than 30 prior to initiating metformin, it should not be initiated. It's contraindicated. If their GFR is between 30 and 45, it's not recommended, so a little more nebulous there, um, but certainly red flag alert. Uh, GFR should be monitored annually in our patients that are initiated on metformin, um, and more frequently if there are other concerns. So if their GFR is less than 45, that's when you really start to assess the risk-benefit uh, profile for the patient and uh, determine whether or not you'd like to continue treatment. And if it does drop below 30, then metformin should be discontinued. Another question, I got this a lot when I was on service last year, all the time from residents, was when metformin, if or when, metformin should be discontinued prior to the patient receiving contrast for imaging. So the revised labeling says that metformin should be discontinued prior to iodinated contrast imaging procedures in patients with a GFR between 30 and 60 if the patient has liver disease, a history of alcohol abuse, or heart failure. All right, our next drug is lixenatide or adlixin. So it's a once-daily glucagon-like peptide 1 or GLP-1 receptor agonist. 
And GLP-1, I'm sure many of you know, is a peptide hormone that is released within minutes after eating a meal. So it suppresses glucagon secretion from the pancreatic alpha cells, stimulates glucose-dependent insulin secretion from the pancreatic beta cells, and slows gastric emptying. The dose is 20 micrograms once a day, has a modest A1C lowering effect, so between 0.7 and 1%. It was found to be non-inferior to exenatide. Adverse effects are consistent with the other GLP-1 receptor agonists, so nausea, vomiting, headache, diarrhea, dizziness, and hypoglycemia, and costs $600 for a one-month supply. These GLP-1 agonists have become crazy popular, particularly when combined with a long-acting insulin. For those of you who have not yet had breakfast, combo number three might sound appetizing. Uh, but in this case, Soliqua 133 includes insulin glargine 100 units per mil, so a long-acting insulin analog, and lixenatide 33 mics per mil in a 3 mil pen. Indicated as adjunct to diet and exercise in our type 2 diabetics, if inadequately controlled on basal insulin less than 60 units per day or on lixenatide. Some of the limitations not recommended for use in patients with a history of pancreatitis uh, or obviously in patients on a GLP-1 agonist. Uh, not for type 1 diabetics or those with ketoacidosis or gastroparesis, and it has not been studied in, in conjunction with prandial insulin. Okay, combo number four. If we didn't like number three, uh, Zoltofi 103.6. This is insulin degludec 100 units per mil with loraglutide 3.6 milligrams per mil in a 3 mil pen. Again, indicated as adjunct to diet and exercise in our type 2 diabetics, inadequately controlled on less than 50 units of basal insulin a day, or loraglutide 1.8 milligrams per day or less. Limitations, not recommended as first-line therapy, was not studied in pancreatitis, so consider not using in those patients. Not recommended with other loraglutide or GLP-1 receptor agonists or type 2 diabetics, again, patients with DKA or with prandial insulin because it wasn't studied. And loraglutide has been shown to cause thyroid C-cell tumors in animals, so just something to be aware of there. Canagliflozin, uh, FDA released a drug safety communication here showing that it, uh, or warning that it increases the risk of leg and foot amputations. So the CANVAS and CANVAS-R trials showed that leg and foot amputations occurred twice as often with canagliflozin as with placebo. So adding a new box warning there, I don't know about you, but this is certainly something I would want to be warned of prior to starting therapy. Um, and in terms of patient counseling, they should immediately report new pain, tenderness, and ulcers. Another drug safety communication regarding canagliflozin and dapagliflozin, they strengthen the warnings pertaining to the risk of acute kidney injury or AKI with these meds and added recommendations to minimize the risk. So patients that are at an increased risk or that would predispose them to AKI, so decreased blood volume or dehydration, chronic kidney disease, concurrent use of ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, or NSAIDs. What else is new in diabetes? So FDA warns of pioglitazone and the risk of bladder cancer, necessitating a label change there. Um, and it was found that the risk is dose and duration dependent, increasing. So the introduction of Humulin R, the 500 unit syringe, empagliflozin or Jardiance, which is an SGLT, SGLT2 inhibitor, received indication from the FDA, this is big, to be used to reduce the risk of cardiovascular death in type 2 diabetics with um, cardio concurrent cardiovascular disease. And the benefits were actually seen within a few months of starting therapy. So a 38% reduction in cardiovascular disease mortality, that's huge. 32% reduction in overall mortality, and a 35% reduction in hospitalizations for heart failure. So pretty promising data there. And empagliflozin is not indicated for patients with a GFR less than 45, as you can see acute renal failure, which long-term may improve um, and should also be used with caution in patients on diuretics and NSAIDs. You want to take the mini-med? So uh, I do diabetes management in my outpatient clinic, and boy, this is, people are just super excited about this. We are one step closer to the holy grail with diabetes, which is a completely implanted, closed-loop system 
for people with type 1 or for type 2s who need full insulin therapy. But this is the next best thing. It is still an external pump, but they have a sensor that you implant subcutaneously that the patient wears for six days. It senses the glucose from the interstitial fluid. It's an algorithm. Your patient does have to check their sugar initially to set up their own algorithm. But then it says, you know, here's what your interstitial fluid glucose is. This is what your algorithm says. The patient has to agree to it. They don't have a choice here. And boom, it's delivered. So uh, people are thinking this is just the cat's meow. All right, in other new drug news, next we have Lofitigrast or Zydra, which is a 5% ophthalmic solution of Lofitigrast, which again is a first D, first in class. It's a lymphocyte function associated antigen one antagonist for the treatment of dry eye. So it reduces ocular inflammation, which is one of the primary mechanisms for dry eye. Standard treatment as we have it right now is artificial tears, the ocular insert devices, ocular anti-inflammatory agents and the tetracyclines. It is found to be modestly effective. So for a mere $426 a month, you get a modestly effective improvement in your dry eye. Uh, adverse It'll make you cry tears of joy. <laughs> From your bank account slowly depleting. Um, adverse effects, irritation, altered taste, reduced visual acuity, mostly mild to moderate symptoms. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's just so darn cute we included it. Be sure to take this drug exactly as directed. Tilt your head to the right at a 37-degree angle. Extend your tongue precisely 4.93182 inches past the furthest point of the upper lip. Place the pill directly between the 48th and 49th taste bud on the left side of the... So we have to be very specific on telling people how to use our drugs. All right, so some other news. I think this is pretty darn exciting. Epidiolex. Yep, sorry. Are we good? Yes. An orphan drug that is pharmaceutical cannabidiol. So this is really orphan drug status, but it's for those crazy, horrible, severe seizures in babies and children. Dravet syndrome and Lano-Gastat syndrome. Uh, children in these trials had tried like up to 10 other anti-epileptic drugs and were still having like at least three seizures a day. And this reduced the seizures by 42% versus 19% for placebo. So, I mean, if those of you who are cannabis fans, boy, this is some data to take to the bank. And there was a video you recommended. Yeah, one of the TED Talks I saw, I think the little girl's name was Charlotte. Um, but it was, I think she had Gervais syndrome and was having, basically living her life in a constant epileptic state. Um, she was having seizures all day, every day, and then was in, um, you know, just sleeping afterwards, obviously. But she went down to a couple seizures a week after that. So pretty promising data there. So we have to wrap up here, but here's yeah. some additional stuff in the news. I think the sufentanil that will be on the market at some point, teeny, teeny, tiny tablet is going to be in a plastic dispenser. It's the size of a head of a pin, uh, a drug for gastroparesis, and a priority view for um, another uh, NOAC there. Restlizumab or Syncare um, is another new agent. This is for asthma, so it's indicated for add-on maintenance treatment of severe asthma in patients 18 years of age or older with an eosinophilic phenotype. Um, so IL-5 is the major cytokine responsible for the growth, differentiation, recruitment, and activation of eosinophils, and rislizumab binds to IL-5 and blocks the binding to IL-5 receptors. It's been shown to reduce asthma exacerbations. It is a monthly infusion, so three migs per kg, IV over 20 to 50 minutes every four weeks. And again, a mere $2,500 a dose. These, again, are just here for your reference. These are the COPD inhalers, some of the combination inhalers, and just things to take into consideration when selecting one for your patient. Dosing frequency, is it once or twice daily? Um, how is the patient's dexterity? Are they able to use it? Um, so meter dose inhaler, the dry powder inhalers, and some of the newer formulations. And just some miscellaneous new drugs that we didn't want to spend a lot of time on. Um, and then some reformulations, which we thought were pretty darn exciting, too. And just other things to keep your eye on. No action needed at this time for some of these, but still some, some moves that the FDA made. And this says, these pills will help you stay asleep. They will change your dreams into PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> so, death by PowerPoint. Do we have any questions for Alex or I? Well, thank you so much for your attention. Thank and have you. a wonderful day.